Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us here on a new season of the Nachum Siegel Network. As youngsters, we studied for exams. As young adults, we filled out college applications and planned our careers and course of study. As household managers, we made lists and organized functions, planned bar mitzvahs and weddings. Some of us even planned our retirement. Why then, when it comes to looking even further ahead in life, are so many of us unprepared? The so-called sandwich generation has a tough time taking care of children and elderly parents. And when thrust into this situation ourselves, we simply don't know where to begin. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, there is no excuse for anyone to be unprepared or for any child to have to break through the puzzle. And we're going to tell you why. We've got two great people joining us today. Leslie Strolovitz. Um, began his career in the world of public relations, promoting talent for such television programs as the Today Show, the Phil Donahue Show, and Mike Douglas Shows. After leaving PR, Mr. Strolovitz went to the banking and financial services industry, where he was responsible for executive information systems, worldwide email, boardroom graphics, and was instrumental in developing the Oxford Analytical System used by the investment banking trading floor, as well as other financial institutions. You're going to hear why today he's going to be talking with us about elder care. Gideon Barry concentrates on Medicaid planning and asset protection. He's an associate in the law office of Ronald A. Spurn with offices in Cedarhurst. He also deals with estate planning, estate administration, and residential real estate. And um, he did go to Benjamin Cardozo School of Law with a bachelor's degree in accounting from Queens College and a master's in labor relations from Cornell. He's also a former assistant dean of Turo Law School, where he was an instructor. And we're going to hear more from Mr. Barry a little bit later. Leslie, I'm going to start with you. How did you get involved in this topic of elder care? Uh, thank you for having me on your show, Randy. Um, I never thought that uh, my parents would ever need the kind of care that I thought I'd be giving them. Um, it all started out when uh, my mother had fallen near my brother's house on the way to shul and ended up in the hospital. And um, I came to the realization that I had no clue as to what kind of medications she was on. The doctors would ask my brother and I what, it, what kind of surgeries has she had, etc. I couldn't answer any of those questions. And it also came to, I came to the realization that uh, she used to do things for my father that I had no clue about, and I had no way of, I, I didn't know how to take care of my father. Um, everything from taking care of the bills to giving him medication, etc. My mother was the caregiver for my father, Oliver Shalom, at the time. So I realized then I have to get everything in order for myself, for my mother, to be there for my mother uh, and my father. And, and so where did I, you begin? Excuse me? Where did you begin? I began by creating, uh, once my mother had recovered into her, into her room, um, I asked her all the questions that I needed to ask her. Uh, what bills are you paying to make sure she still has a roof over her head? What medications is dad taking? And what do I need to, to know to take care of him? And then I realized also that I needed the same list for my mother. So I sat down with my brother, and we came up with a plan who, who lives the closest, because that's a consideration also. 
who's going to be the main caregiver to my mother and my father? And we went down this process, and then I, it dawned on me, you know, if I lined up 10 people in any given setting, 9 out of 10 people would not know what kind of medication the parents are on or which doctors they see or what kind of surgery they had. So I made it my business to do that for my mother-in-law, my aunt, and all the people that need care. Uh, and and it's, a very emo it's, a bit, it's an emotional issue for children. It's an emotional issue for the caregiver, whether it be a husband or a wife. And these are the kind of lists that you should have in an emergency, uh, not only for yourself, but for your children as well. Right. And you would say that when you talk about people who don't, when you mentioned earlier that you talk to people who don't know the medications that their parents are on or who their doctors are, et cetera, you would say that most of those people have parents who are taking care of themselves, getting themselves to doctors on their own, and they're pretty much in charge of their own, uh, you know, day-to-day -day care, Right. And it's only when we're thrust into the situation that we have to be the caregiver that we realize how missing that information is for us. That is correct. And so what I did in my case is I made sure that being that my kids are responsible kids, they're on their own, etc., I gave them a document of not only for myself but for my, my mother. My father had passed away about 10 years ago. And so if I'm not around, I'm out of town on business or something, somebody needs to be there. And let me tell you something. When you, pre when you prepare a document like that, whether you fax it, PDF it, or bring it personally to the, to the emergency room, the doctors are blown away by this because it allows them to give uh, care much quicker and, and more focused. Right. Right. Now, you said in your case also the first thing you did was get together with your brother. And you would recommend, the first question you would ask is, do you have a plan with your siblings? And you would recommend having a meeting. That is correct. And, and, and that meeting should cover many bases, uh, including what kind of financial uh, situation their parents are in. And uh, parents uh, do not like to discuss financials with children growing up. But we're adults now, and mm -hmm. they should discuss it. And you should discuss what kind of health insurance the parents have, where everybody is located. And keep in mind that when some of the children make Aliyah or go out of town, even to California, the care is more difficult. It's more challenging. Right, right. That, that is a very interesting point. And so you said it falls upon the person who lives closest to the parent to sort of be the the manager of that care, right? Correct, correct. Whether it's managing the caregiver, whether it be an outside person, and that brings up an entire bigger discussion of the financials and how quickly one can burn through money. Uh, there's, there's emotional stress on both sides. There's financial stress on both sides, depending on whether they have long-term care, health insurance or not. And so this, this is something that needs to be discussed with all the siblings. And the most important thing is that all the siblings need to be on the same page and approach the parents as a cohesive group that we are all in and this together. We all agree. Right, which I imagine is very challenging. Yes, it is. And um, everybody has to sort of get over their own selves and think about what is best for the person for whom we're taking care of at this time. That is correct. 
Uh, let's get Gideon Barry in on this discussion as well. Um, as we said earlier, Gideon is an attorney who deals with these issues on a day-to-day basis. Gideon, at what point in the process do people come to you? Good question, Randy. Uh, for, for, for my office, we are uh, confronted with a variety of scenarios or situations. Uh, the simplest is when a couple in their late 50s or 60s in good health come to uh, seek advice in how to put their personal and financial affairs in order. Uh, a, different situa- a different scenario would involve a situation where a couple in their 70s who are still in reasonably good health seek us out and perhaps ask their children or one of their children to join in the consultation to develop a plan. The most challenging situation is one in which uh, we are visited in a crisis mode where children come on behalf of a parent who has suddenly suffered some medical catastrophe, perhaps a broken hip or a stroke, and at that point they're at wit's end. They don't know where to begin. They're busy dealing with the parent's medical issues and at the same time trying to begin the process of putting their parent's Uh, personal, legal, and financial matters in order. So in each of those situations, the solution and the uh, options that are available are very different. For the first situation I described, the young, healthy couple, it's all perspective. And at that point in their lives, it is likely that the husband and wife are sharing the information together but are not quite ready yet to share their personal information, whether it's financial, whether it's planning for the future, or perhaps even their medical situation with their children. Many parents view that that information and retaining that information personally as their means of independence. They are not ready to relinquish that control or authority to their children. When we meet with a family that's in their 70s, the landscape has changed, and at that point, we often observe a greater willingness to involve a child or children in the decision-making process. Leslie mentioned, and he's quite right, that ideally we want to see all siblings involved in the care of the parents. Uh, The reality is there are many scenarios or situations in which a child is either not living in this country or is not able or willing to undertake a equal level of responsibility and availability as another child. And that itself can cause a undercurrent of discontent between the children and between the parents and the children. And that's something that we try to assist families in dealing with. It's not to say that we can fix things or that we can always offer a perfect solution but we try to at least resolve the challenge in the matter as best as possible. The situation that Leslie spoke about in great depth is the third situation, where you're dealing with a crisis mode. No planning has been done. A parent is suddenly unable to communicate or is unable to physically get access to their checking account, to their books and their records, and now the children are uh, really forced to scramble to try to put matters in order, whether it's paying a rent bill on time, whether it's knowing what medications need to be taken on a regular basis, or even knowing the level of insurance or Medicare benefits 
that are available to the parents. So like many other things in life, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and ideally we would hope that everyone would be like that first group of families where in their 60s, while everything is very quiet and serene, they reach out and begin the process of planning for the future and for the next chapter in their lives. The reality is that for most individuals, they are not so proactive in planning for the future, so it is more likely that as attorneys we see people in the other two scenarios, either later in life with their children or hopefully not, but often the case where a crisis has developed and it is too much for the children to be able to handle on their own. They need professionals to assist in creating a plan. Right, and it's so interesting what you just said earlier, and Leslie and I were talking about this in our you know, pre-interview conversation, that as parents, we know everything about our children. We could take them to the doctor, and we know what their allergies are, and we know what their weight is and everything, because we're the caregivers for our children. So how do you approach the conversation with parents who don't want to talk about it? As an attorney, my relationship, my primary relationship is with the parent. They are my client. Mm -hmm. I work for them, and I always make that clear to both the parent and to the children. So I never do anything or would never even want to have the appearance of doing anything without the parent's full knowledge, cooperation, and understanding. Mm -hmm. So that's a starting point. I believe that the most effective way to deal with the challenge is where I can educate the senior and try to explain to them that by sharing this information, they're not giving away any authority of their own, but rather they are creating, uh, whether it's legal documents or information sheets, but they're creating a situation so that if, the situ- if, if need be, children or whoever else has been appointed as a caregiver is able to help out. And I'll give you a basic example. One of the documents that is very helpful and beneficial to anyone, but certainly a senior, is a health care proxy, mm-hmm. a document in which you identify a specific individual that you want to be able to make health care decisions on your behalf. That document in no way gives up your power and authority to make the decisions. All it does is it says that if I'm unable to make a decision, this child, this specific child, has my authority to make decisions on my behalf. And all of the children should have access to that document and should have a copy of that document. It's not something that should be buried in a safe deposit box or that the parents should hide in a night table because they are... Uh, you know, sure, it will be not needed for a long time to come in the future. And certainly these days, and, um, you know, in a moment we're going to get to a document that uh, Leslie has has prepared, which has just so much information on it. And one of the things that I read about in, in Leslie's document is that, you know, certainly in these days it's so easy electronically to share all this information. Right, Leslie? That's correct. Uh, it's, it, we live in an electronic age. Uh, we have iPhones, iPads, uh, and computers, so it's so easy to take uh, all the pertinent information and distribute it to whoever needs it. And and let me just add one other thing to Gideon's comment about the healthcare proxy. Mm -hmm. I have been in a situation personally where I was out of town and no one would give me information about a loved one over the phone because Mm -hmm. 
uh, I don't know who you are. Who are you that's calling? Do you have a health care proxy? Well, Meaning you were talking to somebody in a doctor's office? No, in a, in a hospital. In a hospital. Setting. Okay. So by calling a hospital uh, and you identifying yourself as a family member is not sufficient mm-hmm. that, uh, because of all the HIPAA rules. So uh, it so happens that uh, this uh, family member was in that hospital once before, and we had scanned in a health care proxy. So I asked them to look it up. They looked it up, and sure enough, it was there. They were more than willing to give me information long distance. Right. The sharing of information also is so important because uh, oftentimes if one sibling is in the crisis situation or is in the hospital with the parent or whatever, um, that person is getting the firsthand information, and the sharing of that information between all the siblings and between all the family members is so important for the care of the individual, right? That is correct. Uh, I make it my business that every couple of months I sit down with uh, my mother, and uh, any any new information that I get, whether it's change in medications, etc., I make sure to distribute it to everybody as an updated document uh, should anybody need to give care. Right, and things like the Social Security numbers and Medicare information, all of that is important as well for people to have, right? Very important. Uh, those are one of the first few questions that they ask. What kind of health insurance? Everybody knows that. As soon as you end up in an emergency room, the first question is, what, what, what kind of health care insurance mm-hmm. do you have? And, 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 and then they take care of you, etc. Leslie, where do grandchildren fit into this equation? Well, the grandchildren fit into the equation in the sense that... Uh, you know, people travel, people go away on vacation, people go go different places. And the grandchildren, uh, once they're mature enough, uh, fit into it very, very well in the sense that they are also another set of eyes and legs that can go and assist the person that has just been sent into a hospital. Uh, that situation actually happened to us, and two of the grandchildren went to the emergency room and took care of what, what needed to be taken care of uh, because both children uh, were out of town. And, and that worked beautifully. And also, if you currently have a health care giver, an outside person, home health aide, that home health aide should also have the document that they can take in a go bag and take the person. If Hatsala shows up or whatever the situation may be, here's a document that has the whole life history of a person. What if that person that they're giving care for has dementia? That person is not going to be able to give any information. Is there such a document that exists maybe online or something that people could find such a document that exists where they could just sort of fill in the blanks? I'm unaware of it. I just decided to create a Word document and, and attach to it a spreadsheet of all the medications and what milligrams, etc., and how often it has to be administered. And so those, those are important things. And obviously, like you said earlier, the Social Security number and Medicare information and any, any other supplemental health insurance that they might ask for. Right. Uh, you know, when we were talking about grandchildren earlier, I was reminded when my grandmother was in the hospital, so we always wanted to have somebody with her, you know, all the time. You know, at some point, you you do get to the point where you do need to go to that home health aide, or you do need to have somebody from the hospital hired privately to stay with the patient overnight because you simply just lose your stamina to just stay there all the time. But anyway, I did have what I call the privilege of staying over in the hospital with my grandmother one night, and it, 
my, you know, they never came to the grandchildren and said, which one of you wants to stay over tonight? You know, it was sort of like the children came, the, the children of the aging parent were the ones who felt very responsible for the care. And it was never like, oh, do the grandchildren want to stay over? And there was one night where nobody was able to stay over and I volunteered and I felt like, wow, I'm so lucky. You know, and I think sometimes parents might not realize that their children, who are the grandchildren in this case, uh, are, are very capable and would like to be involved and take it as, a, as see it as a privilege. Absolutely, I, I think my, my my children in particular they they welcome the opportunity to look at the document and will be there for grandma or oma or or whoever that you need us to be there for in case you're not around. Absolutely. Um, Gideon, I'm going to read some numbers to you that Leslie put together for us. Um, and the title here is Financial Impact to Primary Caregivers. 83% of primary caregivers contribute financially, an average of $8,800 for out-of-pocket care expenses. And again, you don't have to go through the minutia of all the numbers, just hear the general, the general topic here. 57% have had to dip into their own retirement funds and or savings. 29% borrowed money, took out reverse mortgages, and or sold their home. 63% reported lost income, an average of 23% of household income. 61% reduced their savings by an average of 63%. 40% of primary caregivers reduced their own family vacations. And 45% cut back on their own family expenses. Is this something that you see when primary caregivers come to you? Absolutely. The cost of providing for a loved one over an extended period of time is very expensive, regardless of the setting. The simplest setting would be is uh, someone, you know, parents are well enough, but they're no longer able to run a home or an apartment, and they choose to move into an assisted living facility. That is an environment in which they have uh, their own small apartment, but meals are taken care of in the facility, as well as a certain very basic level of nursing care. That comes at a very high expense. Uh, that's also something that's not paid for by most insurance plans. Mm -hmm. For individuals who need medical attention on an ongoing basis, there is a need to hire an aide. It could be for four hours a day to do light housekeeping. It could be for 24 hours a day to make sure that a parent sleeps through the night safely and is able to uh, get up and, and be washed and bathed and dressed in the morning. That, too, comes at a very high expense. And finally, the most onerous burden is for a skilled nursing facility, a facility that would provide care uh, 24 hours a day, and that is reserved for individuals who need a much higher level of care. For people in their 50s or 60s, an option exists to purchase a product that's called long-term care health insurance. It is not a product that is purchased by a majority of Americans. And the biggest reason for that is because of the cost of the premiums. It's many thousands of dollars a year. But for those who have the wherewithal and the foresight to purchase that product, it gives them an opportunity to draw upon the insurance if they have the need for an aid at home or if they need to go into a skilled nursing facility. The vast majority of clients that I see in my office come to see me because they have not purchased that product, and they are now overwhelmed by the cost of providing for care either at home or in a nursing facility. There are 
certain government programs offered through Medicaid, and those programs vary from state to state, but they can uh, pick up a portion, or in some cases all of the costs associated with that type of care. But to qualify that for those programs also requires planning, because those programs are what is called means-tested, meaning that you are limited in the amount of assets and the amount of income that you are able to have. So Leslie is correct. The document and the information that he has provided is a very telling picture of the challenge available or presented to all seniors and their families, and the numbers are staggering so that for most middle-class families, the parents are unable to absorb the costs on their own, and the children have no choice but to participate in the cost of the care. And very often, a parent's declining health can go on over a course of many years. There's a very important article printed a few years ago called Living Longer, Dying Slower. And that is, unfortunately, the story of the aging process in this country. Doctors and medicine have created an environment in which long lives, but the lives that they lead require a lot of doctor care, hospital care, medical care, and some aides who will be able to keep the people going for the length of their illness. Right. And, and I pose this question out to either of you. What are the tools that you need to make an educated decision as a primary caregiver about at what point is it a good idea to go to assisted living? Should I hire a home a health aide? How do you make that decision in an educated way? Well, it's, it's a good question, and I think sometimes the answer presents itself because the parents, you know, the seniors are able to express their wishes. Mm -hmm. There are some people that feel very strongly that they want to continue to live in their community as long as possible. And in that situation, there's a world of difference between a couple, a husband and wife, where one spouse is well and the other spouse requires assistance, and a single person where they are now going to be totally dependent on a caregiver. So the solutions are uh, rather familiar. Sometimes the solution is for the senior, the parent, to move in with a child. Sometimes the solution is for the senior to remain in their home or an apartment and to have an aide provide coverage for a certain number of hours per day and then have a child check in on them on a regular basis in the evening, in the morning, etc. For individuals, a husband and wife, or an individual where their health is good but they just are perhaps not strong enough to continue doing their own shopping and cleaning, if finances allow for it, assisted living can provide a very good solution. For most people, the only time that they would entertain going into a skilled nursing facility is because there are no other options available to provide the level of medical care that they require on a daily basis. Right, right. Leslie, did you want to add something? Yeah, uh, you know, growing up, uh, I know my parents have discussed that many times. Uh, I don't want to go into what they used to call uh, old-age homes in those days. Now right. They call them long-term care facilities. 
And I respect that, and I understand that, and uh, I've internalized that, and uh, we try to do the best we can under the circumstances and try to avoid that. Right. Right. Well, uh, guys, we're going to take a short break, and um, we are talking about elder care. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back with some more with Gideon and Leslie right after this. Shira, 
Welcome back to Something to Talk About, everybody. I'm Randy Wartelski. That was a great selection from the Maccabees, Raoul Banim. And today we are joined by two guests who are discussing elder care with us. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, as youngsters, we study for exams. As young adults, we filled out college applications, prepared our careers. Household managers, we make lists and organize functions. We plan bar mitzvahs and weddings. We plan our retirement. And then somehow planning for after that just gets lost in the shuffle. And we can help our children by preparing today. A recent study showed the following about primary caregivers. 53 is the average age of a primary caregiver. And of primary caregivers, 42% are caring for a mother, 14% are caring for a father, and 13% are caring for a spouse. And there are things we can do, ladies and gentlemen, to make it easier for our children. And in a moment, we're going to get back to our discussion with Gideon and Leslie. Before that, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's program, please do email me at randy at nachamsegel.com. That's R-A-N-D-I at nachamsegel.com. And if you have any questions for either of our guests, please do email me that as well, and we can get those answers to you, randy at nachamsegel.com. So um, I'm going to go back now to Gideon. Gideon, you said earlier that there is a need to plan, whether you are 60, 70, 80, different ages and different health circumstances require different solutions. What are the major topics involved in elder law and estate planning? And what are the things that we can expect to cover when we come to a visit with you at, let's say, age 60? Well, the starting point for anyone of any age is to have a set of documents that we call advanced directives, and that would include a durable power of attorney. That is a document in which you name individuals who you give authority to to make legal and financial decisions on your behalf. That does not mean that you're giving up any authority to make the decisions yourself. It just says that perhaps you're away on a trip or you're uh, out of town visiting with someone and you want your agent, the person that you've appointed to sign on your behalf, whether it's at a bank or uh, perhaps with Social Security or another agency, the durable power of of attorney would give you that authority. And that's a document in which you can name more than one person at a time to function as your agent. So very often what we'll see is a situation where A husband or wife names a spouse as an agent and then will also name at least one of their children to function in that capacity. The durable power of attorney that our office prepares also addresses the issue of HIPAA, that's the Health Information Portability uh, Act, which provides privacy for health and medical records. But what we do is make sure that when you give someone the authority to be your agent, you're also giving them the authority to be able to access your medical records. The second document in that category of advanced directives is the healthcare proxy, the document that I mentioned a little bit earlier on in our conversation. And the healthcare proxy is the medical version of the power of attorney in that you're giving someone authority to make healthcare and medical decisions on your behalf, but once again, that authority is only being given in an instance where you're unable to do so. Now, for many of your listeners, they might want to also consider something that's called a halachic living will. That is 
the Aguda version or other rabbinic organization versions of the New York State or healthcare proxy, which says that I'm going to appoint an individual to make healthcare decisions on my behalf, but I want those two decisions to be made in accordance with halacha. Mm-hmm. And that document would even include an opportunity to name a particular rav or a particular rabbinical organization that will be involved in the decision-making process. And so does that's that, the starting point. Does that halachic living will get specific in terms of um, specific medical questions? Or if, I have, if there is a medical question, please go to such and such a rabbi or such and such an organization? That it's the second situation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way that any document can anticipate every eventuality. So what the document says is when there are questions, those questions should be answered by the following Rav or by the following rabbinic organization. Mm-hmm. So for some, some of clients will prefer to have the uh, health care proxy, and they'll say, I know that my child is is from, is observant, and that they will seek out whoever they need to seek out to find out the appropriate answer in accordance with halacha. For other people, they say, no, I don't want to leave anything to chance. I want this rav to be consulted when there's a question. Right. Right. Now, Leslie, you decided not to go through uh, an elder care attorney in your own personal situation. What was the, what thought process went into that decision? Well, in terms of uh, assets, uh, uh, is one of the other considerations. If there isn't a lot of assets other than a house, then one can consider putting the house in a trust, which I'm sure Gideon can talk about. Uh, But uh, in that situation, sometimes it's uh, more expedient or better to put the person on Medicaid and get uh, the kind of care that they need because there are no assets out there. So it depends on the, on the individual case uh, which way uh, you you decide to go. But again, it should be something that should be done uh, as a family, uh, as a cohesive group, uh, doing it together with either an attorney or or an agency that handles some of this uh, work for you. I do have a, a, a power of attorney. I do have a health care proxy. Um, uh, but I, I don't have uh, a halachic uh, proxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's and this? Randy, yeah. I, I, I think I didn't fully answer your question because I only addressed the advanced directives. Mm-hmm. But to follow up on what Leslie just said, when it comes to dealing with financial issues, uh, we basically go down two different roads because for families where they have substantial assets, the conversation is governed by uh, estate and tax planning, meaning we want to make sure that we can protect as much of the family's collected assets as we can and uh, do planning to be able to uh, properly plan for estate tax minimization. For families of more limited means, it is the situation that Leslie just described, where we might be able to assist the family in qualifying for Medicaid by properly planning uh, for the use of assets, for transference of assets, etc. Obviously, that's a program that varies from state to state and Mm -hmm. from family to family, and depending on the needs of the family, what type of assistance they're looking for, that will dictate the strategy and program that we would recommend.
Right. I mean, I recall um, a close family friend who was in this kind of situation where their father was not eligible for Medicaid because he owned a building and or, or owned a home or, or something of that nature. And the paperwork was just totally overwhelming. Do you assist families in filling out the paperwork and getting through all of that, um, you know, financial talk? Absolutely. You know, the services that our office or any elder law attorney's office provides would often include uh, the addressing the issues of, of asset transference and then preparing the Medicaid application uh, so that it properly reflects all the work that had been done by our office in terms of dealing with the asset issues. It is a, it can be a lengthy and time-consuming process, and that is why it is certainly recommended and beneficial for people to do the planning as far in advance as possible. Right. I was going to say that the people have to be patient because even once you fill out the form, it does take a long time to get a response and to, you know, to move to the next stage of the next form. And then you find out that you missed something on the form that you didn't fill out like it is. It does take a long time to get through the process. And, and remember also that even though someone might have retained a private attorney, the actual application is being reviewed by a New York City or county official, and you are now dealing with government bureaucracy, which oftentimes is very, very slow. Right, right. When the time comes that you do decide to, or you decide with your um, aging parent to go to assisted living, um, how do you navigate those emotional issues? Or, or f- I knew an, another family who had um, an elderly parent living in Chicago, and they were living in New York, and they very much wanted to bring their aging parent to where they were, you know, a, a healthy, vibrant woman. And they very much wanted to move her across the country to New York to where they were, and that was a very difficult conversation. Um, what kind of professionals could you seek out to, to help in that kind of decision? Is that like a social worker? or a Social worker, a geriatric care manager. Uh, you know, depending on the amount of care that mom or dad has already been receiving, there could be a network of professionals that you have already uh, dealt with. I think it's important, though, for the children to remember that even though they might view the assisted living facility as new and clean and offering all sorts of activities and programs, for many seniors, that relocation from the place they've lived in in their entire lives is an admission or an acknowledgement that that part of their life is now closing and that they are moving into this new phase, which most seniors do not relish or welcome. You know, right. they, they don't view it as a positive step forward. So as a, as a child, it's important to be sensitive and, and understand that and not say, oh, it's going to be uh, you know, so much better and, and, and look at all of the opportunities and new friends you're going to make. Because for many seniors, if they still have a group of friends in their community, they're not looking to make new friends at this time in their life. They right. value their lifelong friendships and relationships. Right. Leslie, do you view it that way as well? Yes, I do. In fact, uh, those people that uh, are listening that do not have children and need assistance, 
there are all sorts of organizations. I happen to come across one organization called Transition Guardians. And this is a group of women that come into your home and help you downsize to perhaps assisted living or to downsize the kind of, from a house to an apartment. And they're very sensitive to uh, what's going on as far as your move. And uh, I found them to be a, a very unique service that people can use. They're located actually in Englewood, New Jersey. Oh, wow. And, um, and how did you find them? You found them online or? I happened to come across them and I thought, wow, I, I never heard of such a niche uh, kind of business that caters to the elderly to be sensitive to, for people that are downsizing or relocating and take uh, very good care to the point where if you have some artwork, they'll try to get it appraised for you, and if you want to sell it, then they'll do whatever has to be done to take care of it. But here's a situation where perhaps the children are not around to help, and this organization helps because you, you need to make this move. Right, and I'm sure that they're that children feel very concerned that their elderly parent is not being ripped off, that the person the person who's watching them, you know, so many people talk about these crazy situations where you turn your face away for one second and people are stealing and, you know, and especially you said in, in appraising your, your valuables, I imagine that that is a very big area of concern for children who are putting, you know, their parents' homes out there. Yes, this happens to be a from woman who started this organization, this company, to help relocate people, and uh, I heard a lot about her through the grapevine, so uh, that, that's the only one that I know of. Maybe there are ten other organizations that do similar things, but this is the one that I'm familiar with most, Transition right, Guardians. Yes, yeah, certainly that would be very helpful when you're, when you're in, in that transition stage. Um, I think, though, that for families where... A child or children are able to be uh, physically involved, visibly present at different stages in the different processes. It can only help. As good as any paid services, it's still a service. Correct. A child will look out for a parent in a way like no one else. Right. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Right, for sure. Um, speaking of children and spouses, what is the role of the spouse of the primary caregiver in all of this? How comfortable should the spouse feel to sort of butt in, give their opinions? And, and what if the spouse and the primary caregiver view it differently? What, what is the role of the spouse there? I think it varies. I think the same way that throughout life, uh, you know, daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law can have wonderful relationships or they can have strained relationships, uh, these types of issues and decisions later in life present only greater challenge because there's more at stake. And if there is a lifelong relationship of trust that's been developed through the years, then it is certainly the place of a spouse to be involved in the process. Uh, but, you know, it, it really depends on a family-by-family family situation. Right. Leslie? Yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, uh, my mother is, uh, can I know her, 88 years old, and my mother-in-law is 90 years old, and they both need a certain amount of help. Uh, my, mo uh, my wife guides me when I'm helping my mom, and I guide her when she's helping her mom. So mm -hmm. it, it's a collective uh, partnership. Right, right. Leslie, has this become and can this become and should it become a full-time job? 
taking care of elderly parents? Uh, it could become a full-time job, um, and that's why it's so important uh, to get together as a family and decide who's going to do what and, and the proximity of, of the help. Uh, some people have uh, given up their jobs to take care of their parents, and some people have uh, chosen to work part-time to be able to devote more time to their parents or, or uh, as a caregiver, or even as a caregiver watching the caregiver. Right. Because uh, if, you, if you have a home health aide, you still have a lot of issues to contend with, uh, one of them being kashras. Right. Uh, the other one being how many hours are they going to be there? Are they treating them properly, et right. cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of concerns. Just because you have a home health aide taking care of a mother or a father or both does not mean that you're off the hook. It means that you still need to get things done for them, uh, but uh, you're not there 24 by 7. Right. Right, which is very challenging as well. Would you advise caregivers to get together with other caregivers to discuss their shared anxieties, their shared concerns, their shared worries, I guess sort of maybe like a support group or something? Either of you? I, I think that uh, what often happens is, it, you know, it can be leaving shul. One, one person knows that another person is caring for a parent in a similar situation, and all you have to do is open up the faucet one bit mm-hmm. and just say, oh, by the way, did you know my aide didn't show up this week? You don't know what type of craziness we had. Right. And suddenly there are so many common themes and topics that will come out. And uh, more, I think more than less, the experiences that people have are common and they repeat because the structure of the problems are common and repeat. Right. Right, Leslie. Yes, I agree with that uh, very much. So uh, it, 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 it goes across the board. Uh, how many times I've bumped into people? I heard you did this, that, and the other thing for your mother. I have a similar situation. Uh, where did you go for help? And uh, unfortunately, I haven't seen. Uh, I belong to several schools, whatever. Uh, I haven't seen any any kind of presentations made uh, like the kind we're making now to your audience. And it's very much needed because we are getting older and so are our parents. Yeah, that's true. And our purpose today is really to encourage people to go ahead and take care of their own, uh, putting together their own medical information, their own financial information, so that later on it doesn't become a burden for their children. But Leslie, what has been the most gratifying for you in, in your whole process of discovery here? Uh, the most gratifying thing is for me is to bring awareness to other people and so that they don't, they don't have the same kind of stress that I went through. And the most important thing is I give their inheritance to my mother, my father, my mother-in-law, and that's so important. If I can just leave your audience with one last thought, and sure. that is no matter how old your parents are, no matter how busy your day is, take two minutes to call your parents and say hello. It should be done every day. There shouldn't be any excuse why anybody from their busy day can't take out two minutes to say, hello, how are you doing? What was your day like today? Most definitely. Most definitely. Gideon, would you give the same advice? I think it's wonderful advice. I think that I feel very privileged to be able to practice in an area of law where at the end of the day I feel like I've helped some families to 
put things in order to reduce the stress, to perhaps save a few dollars or come up with a way to provide care without depleting their resources. It's a very, uh, you know, very, very rewarding area of the law. And I have to tell you that there are many people that I develop personal relationships with, and long after we have finished doing whatever work we were hired to do, the family will catch up with me and give me an update on progress, on situations that have taken a turn for the better, hopefully, or maybe there's a new challenge. So I think that it is a field that continues to grow because the need for services, the need for legal assistance in this field will only continue to grow as the demographics of this country continue to age and the number of seniors continues to grow. Right. And and we should take that as a positive thing also, that the number of seniors is continuing to grow and we're, we are able to provide seniors with quality of life, um, you know, at this age. Absolutely. It's a good thing. It's Arichas Yamim, but the Arichas Yamim comes with certain additional responsibilities. And for children, that means that even as they're in their 50s and their 60s, if mom and dad are in their 80s or maybe even in the 90s, they have additional responsibilities, not only to their children but to their parents to make sure that their parents are cared for as they age. Right, right, most certainly. Um, are there of you uh, any more pieces of advice that you'd like to share with our audience today? Anything else that's coming to mind that you feel is important in this process? Well, I would say that the most important message I would want to leave people with is that planning is a good thing. Sticking your head in the ground is a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's important to at least know what the challenges are what you need to think about for the future. So perhaps if you're in your 60s and you're not ready to make these decisions, at least you know what the decisions are. At least you know that there is a product called long-term care health insurance, and then you can decide positively or not to go ahead and purchase the product. But for people who choose to say, oh, I'm going to live forever and I don't really need to think about this and I don't need to have a discussion with my child, what that does is it begins a process in which years down the road they will have a crisis to deal with rather than having placed things in order. Right. Right, most definitely. Leslie? Yes, I, I think that uh, Gideon got it right. Uh, planning is, uh, is essential. Uh, you, no one wants to be in crisis mode. And to avoid that, you have to start thinking about your parents, about yourself, and the extended family. Right. Well, I thank you both for sharing your experience, uh, Leslie, for sharing your experience in such a frank uh, manner with us, and uh, Gideon, you as well, for sharing your expertise. And as I said earlier, if anybody has any questions for either Gideon or Leslie, who are both very knowledgeable on this topic, please do email me, randy at com, and get in on the conversation. And I thank you so much for joining us here. We hope that today we've given you something to talk about right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Listen up with... Chaim Hagler is up next.